from Green Biz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Heather Clancy filling in for Joel McCower, who is taking a few very well-deserved days off. On this week's edition, we chat with the managing director of a new $70 million fund created to bring clean, affordable energy to at least 10 million people in sub-Saharan Africa. That's just over the next decade. We share insights on zero emissions fleet investments from strategists at UPS and Walmart. Plus, the second installment in our What I Do interview series with corporate sustainability executives. This week, we give the microphone to Davida Heller, Senior Vice President at City. All this and more this week on 350. It's May 31st, 2019. Welcome to Green Biz 350. Joining me from the Green Biz headquarters in downtown Oakland, California is Shauna Rappaport, Vice President of Green Biz Group and Executive Director of our Verge Conference. Shauna, hello. Hello, Miss Heather. So you've been pretty busy the last few weeks. I mean, we're always, always busy, but you've had an especially busy period. Tell us why that is. Yeah, well, lots of exciting things happening in the Verge world. Of course, here at Green Biz HQ, the whole team is fast and furiously working towards our upcoming uh, and inaugural Circularity 19 conference, which is very exciting. We're, we're talking sellout. For, we're talking we're sellout. Talking <laughs> sellout in its first year, which is extraordinary. Um, and of course, I'm laser focused on our Verge conference as well. I think the biggest and most recent development is that just last week we went live with our draft program online. Um, so we already have an extraordinary program building out both in our keynote program, um, our tutorials and workshops. And I'm feeling really excited about what we have in store and, and confident that it is going to be our strongest and most um, really unique and differentiated program yet. Now, this is the inaugural conference that will feature our carbon track, our carbon conference. Can you tell us a little bit more about the sessions that are building for that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and and one of the things too, so this year, of course, is our launch of now fourth concurrent conference happening as part of Verge, Verge Carbon, which to be clear is not focused on emissions reduction or mitigation, really Verge Energy and Verge Transport, even Verge Circular really focus on the, the emissions reduction side of accelerating the clean economy. Verge Carbon is really about carbon removal, carbon drawdown, both the emerging technologies and market landscape are around, you know, direct air capture, which you and I are going to be chatting about in just a minute, um, and 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 uh, as well as the land-based solutions. So uh, food and forests and farming and the opportunities to sequester those excess emissions out of the atmosphere and get them back in the soil and back in uh, back in new products and materials where they can where they can create value and, and huge market opportunities as well. Now, I'm excited to work with you on some of our technology-focused uh, sessions. Like, I know we're going to be exploring a, a range of, of topics related to artificial intelligence, and I'm really excited to, to dig my teeth into that. I'm, I'm actually exploring that um, related to circular economy applications right now. I've got a story that I'm working on, and I'm excited about that one. Um, but you also just wrote a piece about alternative proteins. Tell me why it's impossible to ignore that world. 
<laughs> I did. I did. It's been it's been impossible for me not to be thinking about this as a as I wrote in my piece, an enthusiastic eater of alternative proteins. Um, just been really tracking the growth of that movement and market, obviously, and most notably this past month, the landmark initial uh, initial public offering IPO of Beyond Meat, the largest out of the gate IPO in 2019. Um, you know, I think there's something really there to look at. And I invoked our, our friend and Green Biz Friendly, uh, Andrew Beebe, who is one of the smartest people that I know when it comes to where, um, as he and his organization, Obvious Ventures, talk about world positive ventures um, and really world positive markets. I think this whole landscape of alternative proteins um, is really interesting and something something for us to, uh, to be tracking closely, both from a planetary perspective and the importance of, of, of reducing uh, meat consumption, um, the obviously detrimental environmental, social, and human health impacts, um, and equally so the huge uh, environmental, social, health, and business opportunities in this emerging emerging market around plant-based or alternative proteins. Mm -hmm. I'm especially encouraged by how many of my meat-eating friends, I'll say it, are looking at this. I mean, they are they are very intrigued by the Impossible Burger. It's it's all over the place here um, in Little Midland Park, New Jersey. The, the local burger joint actually has um, it on the menu. And I think it's really um, gratifying to me that, that, quote, you know, ordinary citizens, end quote, are really interested in this topic. And I think it's, it's one of those tipping points for, for people to be reconsidering their diets. And that's one of the things, too, that I reflected on in this piece that I think is important to just acknowledge as well. You know, these the emergence of these companies beyond meat, Impossible Burgers, there are others as well. These are not just your, you know, being served in your vegan friendly, you know, mom and pop shops. They're now at Burger King, McDonald's is playing with the idea beyond, uh, you know, Del Taco, Little Caesars, Carl's Jr. now has their beyond famous burger. I mean, this stuff is really going mainstream. And so I think the the potential um, uh, is enormous. Yeah. So we'll be talking more about Verge 19 in the weeks and months to come over the summer. But let's go now to the week in review. So I'll get us started, Shauna, with one of my favorite stories this week it is uh, from our Purpose and People series, and it's about a social entrepreneur named Safia Mini. Now, she is the founder of People Tree, which is focused on sustainable and ethical sourcing in the fashion industry. I don't I didn't know much about her before I read the piece. Maybe you do. I'm I. I'm not as focused on fashion as I, I used to be. Uh, lots of hand-me-downs in my in my uh, closet. But um, this this is an intriguing piece about um, you know basically the sourcing issue, and that really when it comes down to the fashion industry, the the sourcing, where these materials come, how they're grown, the the rights of the people that help uh, put these pieces of of clothing together. That is sort of fundamental to sustainability strategy and. Um, you know, this is one of those great examples of where human rights and sustainability really are, are intersected very closely. Um, so this is, a, this is a great interview um, about uh, why you want to embed sustainable development goals into, into a sustainability strategy and some very specific examples of how that happens yeah. um, 
from a clothing Yeah, company. I mean, the SDG piece was certainly most striking to me. It's it, obviously more and more companies are, are embracing the SDGs, looking at how to align their sustainability strategies and goals with them. But you don't hear as often about fashion companies doing that. And I think, I mean, one of the things that struck me the most, you, you hear it, but to actually just internalize that of global total carbon emissions, they, they estimate 8% alone come from just the fashion industry. And so the way in which in her responses in this interview, she weaves together various SDGs around, um, you know, gender, environmental justice, obviously climate and, and human health. I often think through a convergent and sort of interconnected systems lens. And I think it's really exciting and promising to hear uh, social entrepreneurs who are succeeding um, so significantly, uh, helping to connect the dots between how all of these different SDGs really interrelate. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that we continue to watch also is the water usage of these companies, the whole dying process is just a huge hog. It, it uses so much water. You hear the, the, the denim companies talking a lot about that. So again, another area to watch and, and a big impact that, that doesn't get talked about potentially enough. One of the uh, encouraging things that I took away from this piece as well is um, Minnie's notes that she she looks at the banks behind British High Street. So High Street being the, the fashion district in London and, and that sort of, uh, it's like uh, the Madison Avenue <laughs> a mystique in New York City. But when she started looking at this uh, about three years ago, she noticed that many of the banks weren't really thinking about this issue. Um, they weren't really screening the, the companies for that particular, um, for, for their sustainability practices. And now she says that she's finding that has dramatically changed, um, partly because of the reputational risks that the fashion companies are sensitive to. But, but she feels that, um, again, Maybe there's a tipping point going on. So it's an encouraging uh, interview. I, I, I loved it. I thought um, it was very insightful. So Agreed. Yeah. So moving on next to one of our favorite topics, carbon. <laughs> Woo uh, the, the next piece I want to highlight is a, it came from our friends at Carbon 180, formerly uh, the Center for Carbon Removal. Is that, was that the, the previous name? Remind me. Am I getting that, that right? correct. Okay. Yep. Um, and they, uh, one of our friends over there, R Rory Jacobson, wrote about a um, new report from the Rhodium Group. They're, they've done a lot of work on climate impacts. Um, you, you've seen, we've seen a lot of their good studies uh, relating to Hawaii's clean energy transition as well. And this one focuses on direct air capture. So what was your big takeaway from this one, Shauna? Yeah, well, I mean, just stepping back and up for a moment, you know, I think it's really important. There's one piece that the Rhodium Group's report really highlights and that uh, Rory uh, fleshes out a little bit in this piece, which is that when we think about the, the broader sort of climate action landscape, we look at the goals, the science-based goals around which the Paris Accord um, has been designed. What's important, I think, to really internalize, and as, as uh, Rory, the author, kind of outlines, you know, yes, we are seeing extraordinary progress in the acceleration of markets around electrification, energy efficiency, decarbonized electricity. Um, that alone, even at its most accelerated and uh, 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 rate of adoption, is not going to be enough to 
meet, let alone exceed the targets outlined in the Paris Agreement. Um, and and so that's why, I, you know, for us, for you know, with the launch of Verge Carbon this year, it's been so affirming. Almost weekly, daily, we're seeing stories come across our desk about the growing uh, appreciation of the extent to which carbon removal um, technologies, carbon drawdown, including direct air capture as a really significant piece of that puzzle, is going to be absolutely essential um, in not just the mitigation and emissions reduction side of things, but actually looking at how do we draw down that excess uh, carbon in the atmosphere and, by the way, unlock the massive opportunities um, that that uh, exist within that, both from, uh, as I mentioned earlier, a material standpoint, from a, a new product development standpoint, but also from a, um, from a, a land use standpoint as well. More carbon-rich soil retains more water. It, it's more productive. But this piece, of course, in particular, I'm getting I'm getting too excited thinking about <laughs> the whole landscape. This piece does a great job at really um, at helping demystify, I think, in a very accessible way, both the science and technology around direct air capture, but also the need for um, for more investment in the research and development to really scale these kinds of technologies. Yeah, and one specific thing that the report does is, is key in on a, a, another a different analysis that's from the National Academies of Sciences, Ener Engineering, and Medicine. Um, there's, there's a sort of a gap right now in federal funding, right? So um, the reports and, and this, this piece recommend that we, we try to redesignate um, an average of $240 million annually to new R&D funding in direct air capture from the federal level. So that's not, that doesn't count really the, the stuff that's happening at the private sector. But, um, you know, that seems like a big number. It's like, oh my gosh, we're not spending enough money on this. But um, I think the, the comparisons that this yeah. article does against other programs show that this is really possible. Like if we think differently, if, if our policymakers think differently and, and redirect some of that money, um, you know, 240 million, that compares with like an average of 822 million um, on energy efficiency and, and slightly more than that on renewable energy. So, I mean, the, this is doable. Yeah. Yeah. And I was struck too by a, a fun play on words, you know, Rory invokes that, you know, plants, like literally photosynthesizing plants have have spent billions of years now mastering, you know, doing R&D in mastering this process of, of, of photosynthesis. And now we have this extraordinary um, moment, opportunity, imperative to develop our own carbon removing plants um, that, of course, he's referring to direct air capture plants. Um, but yeah, it's a very exciting time. And I think the the, the the cost curves that we're, we're seeing come down. Uh, Jim Giles of our team, who's our uh, Verge Carbon uh, conference chair, has been chatting with the carbon engineering folks um, whom Rory uh, invokes in the piece. Um, they're really out front in helping to reduce the costs um, of this technology, which has traditionally been very expensive so that we can see it get to scale as, as quickly as possible. Definitely something we're going to be exploring uh, across the Verge Carbon conference. And one of uh, uh, carbon engineering's biggest partners is Occidental Petroleum. So another thing worth mentioning that that industry is super interested and super funded. <laughs> so there's money behind this. Yeah. 
Yep. So our final piece for the Week in Review is from our wonderful transportation writer and uh, uh, Verge conference chair on transportation issues, Katie Fahrenbacher. And she spoke with the chief technology officer of Ford. His name is Ken Washington. Um, it was kind of a, 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 a I don't know if fortuitous is the right word, but um, it was an interesting timing for her, her interview because it came amid, unfortunately, some layoff news for the company. The Ford, like all the other big automakers, is undergoing a huge disruption um, in, in terms of where it's focusing its R&D. And they did announce a 10% layoff um, of its white-collar workforce last week. Um, at the same time, they are going gung-ho into totally new areas. And, and specifically, they've just launched and announced a new partnership with Agility Robotics. Robotics, um, which is a startup that makes two-legged robots. And so um, <laughs> that one gave me pause. It was like, what? You know, uh, what is this robot going to do? So they're looking at ways that this, this uh, technology could play a role um, not, in self, not only in self-driving um, services, right? So some of its aut autonomous vehicle services like robo-taxis that it's looking at, as well as um, potentially delivery vehicles. So uh, an interesting interview um, with <laughs> which she's got the five D's. I love this one. Um, the five takeaways: data, delivery, disruption, digit, which is kind of a pun for uh, legs, <laughs> but also disturbing. And I'm gonna I'm gonna hit that cultural thing in a moment. But I want to give you a, a chance to weigh in first, uh, Shauna. Yeah, well, just you know, your your point about the the poignancy of this news, and or at least Katie's the timing of Katie's interview with Ford's announcement about the layoffs. I was struck hearing a, a, a quote that Katie wove into her piece, in in which she she asked him point blank about that, about you know how challenging it is to be prioritizing this kind of really innovative, forward thinking tech R and D while the company is simultaneously having to navigate layoffs. And his comment was his comment was really on point, which is, you know, he says, this is a part of the reality of a business that is being disrupted and changed by the promise and potential of new technology. When you're dealing with a world that's changing, you have to change with it. And I think, you know, that's, it's exciting to hear that kind of leadership that's able to bridge the chasm of the old world that's transforming while also helping to bring forth the, 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 um, the new world and, and ensure that their company is evolving with the with the times and the changes in their own industry. So I was struck by that piece. So I'm going to go back to that disturbing thing I mentioned because I think that this is one of those those issues that uh, it really it, it comes down to whether something gets accepted or not. So the the robot in question that Ford will be testing is is called Digit. Um, that's its name um, and. And it, they're spending a lot of time focusing on the creepy factor, right? So, like, I don't know what how you would react if you saw a robot walking past you on the sidewalk. Um, if you see people in shopping malls, those those little kiosk guys that 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 stand there and tell you know give you directions. There's various reactions, like people like kind of laugh about them or kind of shy around them or try not to make eye contact. And I think this is an interesting. You know, she discussed the sort of cultural you know, factors related to these technologies, which sometimes gets overlooked when, you know, when I know when I geek out about something, I, I can get really excited and I, I have to step back and think about, you know, how my dad would react to something or how my, you know, 
friends down the street would. And so I think um, one of the points that he, he made to Katie was why and how they're going to, you know, design this, whether it should be rolling, should it look a lot like a human or just slightly like a human? Like what, what's the, what's the, you know, the, the line that you, that you, you know, where it's clearly a robot and not a scary robot <laughs> as Washington yeah. says. Katie even hyperlinked to a Business Insider piece about uh, how people are already starting to kick these food delivery robots and how it's an early insight into how cruel humans could be to robots. So it's an interesting, um, you know, it's important to always consider unintended consequences of new and emerging technologies. But you're absolutely right. The the extent to which there are cultural uh, unintended, uh, unintended consequences that influence culture as well in ways in which culture can can create unintended consequences is a really important piece uh, to it uh, in this whole emerging world of um, AI and robotics. Amar Inamdar is an investor, advisor, and entrepreneur from East Africa. He is currently the managing director of Kawi Safi, a $70 million investment fund created by impact investment organization Acumen. Kawi Safi is focused on the transformation of energy markets in Eastern Africa. Amar's goal is to scale world-class companies that bring clean power to millions of underserved customers and drive economic growth. His previous experience includes roles at the International Finance Corporation, the World Bank, and Royal Dutch Shell. Amar, welcome to Green Biz 350. Hey, Heather. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the opportunity to have a conversation. So let's start with some context. Kawisafi's goal is to bring clean, affordable energy to 10 million people in the next 10 years across sub-Saharan Africa. Why is this such a vitally important region to address? So, Heather, for me, the uh, the answer to the question is, is, is quite simple. Um, there's more than 600 million people across Africa where nighttime just means darkness. Um, it means that when the sun sets, you don't get to use appliances, you don't get to watch TV, you don't get to have a light bulb to do work to. Uh, you can't read. Um, that, that convenience that we've had for 150 years since Edison first put the light bulb together, uh, that convenience doesn't exist, that flick of a switch. Um, we'll take that for granted. When the sun drops be- below the horizon, we flick the switch. Um, but think of almost double the population of the United States, uh, just to contextualize it, walking home at night in the dark, uh, not being able to study uh, living the evenings in darkness. And it means more, I think, than just um, households not having light and us not being able to use appliances. Um, you know, just throw that scope out to the, the, the productive world. Um, just 1% of agricultural land in Africa is, is irrigated. Um, Solar-powered irrigation, according to the UN, could benefit 185 million smallholder farmers across the continent. And by bringing irrigation to those farmers, uh, we dramatically boost productivity, we contribute to the economy, we create growth, um, and we help families uh, to live the lives of dignity that we all kind of learn to, to want to accept and see. Um, th- there's a couple of other things. I mean, if you think big picture, um, one American citizen uh, in a year uses about as much energy as 100 Nigerian uh, residents. Hmm. Um, and think about Nigeria developing. Uh, that's a huge hunger for power. 
um, and that power has to come from somewhere. If it comes from fossil fuels, um, then our global targets of wanting to hold to two, two degrees centigrade, um, uh, hold down CO2 emissions, that gets blown out of the water. So we have to find new solutions uh, to bringing power to people, to bring power to businesses. Um, and and yeah, our view, my view is that the business community has a huge opportunity uh, right. to meet these two, two amazing goals, right? There's the universal energy access goal. We want everybody on the planet to have access to clean power. Uh, there's a low carbon economy goal. We want everyone to be able to live productive lives and, and, and yeah, generate the sort of uh, economic uh, growth that um, we've all gotten gotten used to and, and want to take for granted. So, um, I, so I, want, this, yeah, yeah. I, I want to key in on that, um, that economic opportunity. Um, and and you, you already outlined it a little bit for specifically to the agricultural sector. But what role will your organization play in, in bringing energy to if you think about it, the African entrepreneur ecosystem and, and businesses, mm. a lot of companies in the U.S. are starting to look at Africa as a as a place where maybe their next supply chain will be. Um, you know, that's so right. How, that's right. right. How will that um, be be instrumental in what you're doing? So, look, lack of uh, lack of electricity is correlated to a lack of economic development, right? So, there's a causation correlation thing that we can talk about, but bottom line is the more power an economy has. Uh, the more productive it can be. And so if you want to get product into supply chains, be it um, uh, agricultural or, or be it uh, manufacturing supply chains, you have to process uh, some of that product. You have to get it to uh, ports and to markets. Um, and we look at this in a couple of different ways. I and mean, then on the one hand, we look at companies generating power and bringing power to uh, people and to industries in Africa. And we also look at it as... Um, companies that serve the power needs of businesses in Africa. So we invested in a company called Redavia, uh, which is a small business power generator. Uh, what they do is they, um, they target that sort of small, medium-sized enterprise, um, uh, chocolate producers in Ghana, um, uh, ice makers, uh, beverage manufacturers, uh, and they bring clean, reliable power in a, a, a flat pack solution, a modular solution. Um, they have a fantastic controller supply chain and they can bring power at multiple different scales. They have a modular solution for these guys. So anything from 80 kilowatts up to two megawatts of power uh, can be served by one of these companies. Um, and what you're doing there is you're taking away uh, one of the biggest constraints to productivity in Africa, which is power. And so you, if you're a business um, and you're processing cocoa and turning it into chocolate, uh, you need to be near the grid or you don't have any choice. Um, even if you are near the grid, uh, oftentimes you have inconsistent power, you have power outages, so you have to get yourself a diesel generator. And, you know, hey, hey, presto, we're back to uh, fossil fuel burning uh, to generate the power needs of, uh, of great businesses. So there are solutions out there. We're looking for them. We're hungry for them. We've invested in a couple um, and uh, we can see some real growth and some real opportunity here. Another one of your investments was what, Delight, which I love. That. Mm -hmm. I love that name. You know, what inspired that investment? So D-Light is um, one of the older uh, players, one of the young, well, older players in the space, and that they've been around, they've been around the block a few times. They were one of the first movers uh, to recognize the opportunity of a low grid access, low energy set of economies, and the opportunity presented by solar. Um, 
They um, were invested in very early on by the Ackerman family. Mm. Um, they were Ackerman was one of the first investors of Delight. Uh, stuck through them all the way through. And, and this is one of those great examples of patient capital coming in, spotting an innovation, uh, walking that long path uh, to toward growth and scale and profitability uh, and all of the challenges that sit in between there. But what we love about, uh, about Delight is the simplicity of their design, first and foremost, so the ability to get just extraordinary products in the hands of people uh, that are high quality and lasting, their ability to understand emerging markets and how you take the idea of technology and turn it into a business in an emerging market. That, that is a phenomenal thing to, to understand and that takes uh, extraordinary leadership and an ability then to actually build a team. Um, and, and then this idea of radical affordability, um, you know, the, the, the prescience and the foresight to think about the market and the customer segments um, and to design and design and design a way towards radical affordability. And that, that's been enabled by a few big uh, headwinds alongside uh, Delight's ingenuity. Uh, the headwinds have been, you know, PV costs are just coming down. They keep coming down, and that's a fantastic thing to be seeing. Uh, storage costs are coming down. They came down 30% just in the last two years. Um, energy efficiencies like LED light bulbs are just getting it so much more efficient. Uh, and then you have mobile money on top of that, which allows for a, a slow amortized payment for a, for a capital good. So you can pay for a two or $300 system over a two or three year period and, and reduce it to, to pennies per day. Um, so that radical affordability is, is something that we found so exciting about uh, the sector and, and Delight in particular. And the thing we love about Delight is that they're about to reach uh, a huge target of impacting 100 million people globally, uh, bringing light and clean power uh, to, to this extraordinary number. Right. Awesome. So you've mentioned solar quite a few times. Um, and off-grid solar is something that I hear often discussed as an opportunity in Africa. But, you know, my final question to you is what other sorts of technologies can we expect Kawisafi to prioritize? So Kawisafi uh, invests in the whole ecosystem of decentralized power. We have this hypothesis that you can leapfrog the grid um, just in the same way that cell phones leapfrog landlines um, sort of 20, 20 or so years ago in many of these emerging markets, we can see that happening uh, here. And solar is a big part of it. But we invest right the way across what we're calling the ecosystem, right? When you think of it, of energy, you think of a system rather than a transaction. Um, there's many different pieces that make energy work. Um, and when we think about ecosystem, we, we don't just think of PV, although you know, photovoltaics are part of what we invest in. We've just invested in an extraordinary little company called Opus Solutions that um, uh, provide micro solar panels into appliances. So you know, we can have distributed products with their own power uh, wirelessly participating on the, on, onto uh, the wireless grid. And, and that's something that is, is part of the Internet of Things. But we also invest in consumer financing companies um, you know, without really effective, well-priced consumer finance uh, you can't get this radical affordability that I've talked about. Uh, so you have to understand the consumer and you have to be able to get finance to them in, a, in an effective way that manages risk. Um, and then we also look really hard at the appliance efficiency and, and productive use side of things. So cold chain, refrigeration, uh, irrigation, pumps, 
Um, you know, there's a plethora of appliances and appliance innovation out there that we are finding really interesting from an innovation perspective because there's so much effort being put now into efficiency around that uh, that they can we can lock those systems up to very lower low power producers. Uh, and then, of course, um, we're looking at the mobility space as well, right? So why not uh, emerging economies as they start coming into uh, being able to access uh, mobility? Uh, why not that mobility be driven by uh, electric motorbikes to start off with electric vehicles um, and driving uh, this energy ecosystem forward so that we're, we're really seeing this as an opportunity for uh, a low carbon development, you know, this low carbon future that we will want to see. That's an exciting world. Well, best of luck with your mission. Thank you so much for joining us on Green Biz 350. It's my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. senior writer covering the fascinating and dynamic topic of sustainable transportation for green biz and this week i've been thinking a lot about the challenge of electrifying long-haul trucking you know all those semi-trucks that you see driving up and down the highways carrying construction materials or farming supplies or what have you in the u.s these trucks move the majority of the goods shipped around the country The problem, of course, is that these trucks use diesel fuel, which emits carbon emissions as well as air pollution. So why don't we just move these big old trucks over to battery power? Well, some companies like Tesla with its electric semi-truck are advocating for that, but many retailers and shipping companies say that batteries are not yet a good enough option for long-haul trucks. That's because companies like Walmart want trucks that will drive hundreds of miles from one location to the next, and it makes it really difficult and inefficient and unorganized to charge all those vehicles across such a wide area. I chatted with Walmart Senior Manager of Supply Chain Sustainability, Jennifer Wheeler, about just this issue. Electrification is probably one of the most popular topics out there. I think, you know, duty cycle is going to play a huge factor um, in how how fast fleets can um, adopt the technology. For us, we have a very dynamic operation. You know, it's more over the road. Our drivers aren't, they they don't typically do an out and back run. Driver leaves their home domicile on their their day out and they might not get back to their home domicile until five days later. We have optimization software that's crunching all the numbers. you know, how much time the driver has, the loads dropping into the system, all, all of those different var- variables and constantly coming up with solutions. So for us, with, without a, a national infrastructure, it's going to be really challenging to transition to electric heavy-duty vehicles. For the shipping companies, too, they're also looking at low and zero emission alternatives to battery-powered long-haul trucks. For example, UPS recently announced that it's making the largest purchase order of its kind in the U.S. of renewable natural gas to power its fleet of natural gas Class 8 trucks. Renewable natural gas is methane that's emitted from waste or decomposing organic matter. And companies can siphon off this renewable natural gas, it's also called biogas or biomethane, from hog farms or landfills or wastewater treatment plants. And they can inject it directly into the natural gas transportation infrastructure after it's cleaned up a bit. 
For a company like UPS that has already built out a natural gas fueling infrastructure for vehicles, the upside of using renewable natural gas is that they can just drop it into the natural gas truck and fueling system and it's zero emission. A truck driver can also fuel up a natural gas truck much more quickly than charging a battery these days. To learn more about how renewable natural gas trucks and electric trucks are being used for shipping companies kind of in tandem and in different locations, I talked with UPS's Director of Fleet Procurement, Mike Castile. In our fleet, when when we started deploying the Class 8, the the heavy-duty tractor trailers that go over the road, first of all, our trucks go out and come back to the same place. We don't don't run cross-country with these, with rare exceptions. The vast majority just... So that allows us to fuel at home for every route. So um, we build our natural gas trucks to go long distances because part of the uh, benefit of doing this is saving money on fuel because natural gas costs less than diesel fuel. So our natural gas fleet runs high miles. When we're able to deploy electric, they would inherently run lower miles. So I can also add to that most electric routes in our fleet will be urban type, heavy stop start type of loads. So your miles are going to be less, but you're going to have heavier stops and starts so so that you get better efficiency from the, from the electric drivetrain through regeneration, you know, through stopping regeneration and, and you know how that works. So um, in natural gas, can run longer miles. So we can see a combination of natural gas and electric being in the same place, doing two different, um, you know, performing two different duty cycles and two different, two different types of route. So that's, that is kind of in our, in our future thinking. our final segment, we're going to feature another edition of our ongoing series, What I Do, about the real-life jobs of sustainability professionals. Up this week is Davida Heller, Senior Vice President of Corporate Responsibility at Citigroup. Here's her audio postcard. My name is Davida Heller. I'm the Senior Vice President of Corporate Sustainability at Citigroup. I work on Citi's Corporate Sustainability team and we oversee Citi's global sustainability strategy. So what that means is we play a coordinating role and I oversee certain parts and pieces of the sustainability strategy. I've been with City for five years working in the sustainability team. Before that, I worked in a couple of nonprofits, including the Climate Group as well as the Earth Institute at Columbia University. My role, though, has always incorporated engagement with the private sector. I got my master's in sustainability at Columbia University, but before that, I actually had a completely different career working in the film industry. I decided to pivot my career because I've always been interested and passionate about environmental issues, but I didn't know how to manifest that into a career. And what I realized is my background in film and communications and project management actually helped to frame my skill set and my success. Mm-hmm. 
For a bank, sustainability focuses on, on a number of things. At Citi, we focus on environmental finance, environmental and social risk management, and operations and supply chain. What those three pillars are focused on is how do we engage with our clients, what opportunities are we looking at to finance that promote sustainability, how do we deal with environmental and social risk management, so aspects of transactions that could be in high-risk sectors, and then how do we look at our own operations and supply chain to address any kind of sustainability or operational footprint reductions, and we have goals across each of those areas. Every day is different. My work focuses on internal and external engagement. So I can be having calls throughout the morning with banking teams to understand a little bit more about different transactions that can count towards our 100 billion environmental finance goal. I can have calls or meetings with external stakeholders and nonprofit organizations and partners of city. A lot of it is also working internally with our team and looking at different initiatives that we oversee. What's really great about my role is that I get to touch a lot of different things around the company that I might not control or manage, but our team plays a coordinating role to connect the dots to tell City's narrative and story on how we are looking at and define sustainability. For example, in our sustainable progress strategy, we focus on three areas, environmental finance, environmental social risk management, and operations and supply chain. While we don't oversee those three areas or all of the units, what we do is look at how those different activities interplay. So working with a banker and identifying the different transactions that meet the criteria of our environmental finance goal, or working with our environmental and social risk management team on different transactions to identify if there's any kind of reputational risk in operations and supply chain, looking at how do we achieve our 100% renewable energy goal. So working with the sustainability team within operations and identifying opportunities to meet that goal. What I love most about my job is the opportunities in the nexus of finance and sustainability. I think we're at a pivotal moment in the evolution of incorporating sustainability in how you do business. And it is fascinating to watch how we are developing and starting to understand how to actually finance that transition to a low carbon economy. In sustainable finance, it's important to identify what those financial opportunities are. And with the work that I've done on the 100 billion environmental finance goal, that has been a key tool internally to help shape the narrative on understanding that there is opportunity in sustainable finance. It is not philanthropy. It is actually good business. And we're starting to see how that is getting incorporated in the way City does business. At City, our mission is to enable growth and economic progress, and City has been engaged in sustainability for over 20 years. It's been really interesting to watch how sustainability has gone from being something that people didn't really understand and was outside of the mainstream of finance to see how now it's actually evolved as a consideration and an integral part of the conversation in how we do business. 
Our CEO spoke at a conference last year. He said something that really has stayed with me in that in his vast career, the conversation has changed from we're a bank, what can we do? To we're a bank, let's see what we can do. And it's a much different perspective and approach. I feel very privileged and I'm very excited about having the opportunity to, to work in the field that I do and contribute to the conversation on how we get to where we need to be. That's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find out more about the organizations, stories, and events mentioned in this episode. And while you're on the site, look for a link to our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. You'll also want to make sure you're subscribed to our portfolio of weekly newsletters, including thematic updates on our core coverage areas, including the circular economy, energy, transportation, and the sustainability profession. And of course, I'd be remiss not to make a special plug for Verge Weekly, edited on alternate weeks by me and Shauna Rappaport. GreenBiz 350's director is Stephanie Joyce. A special shout out to Isaac Silk for producing the What I Do segment. And a huge thanks to Shauna for joining me this week as co-host. Joel McCower and I will be back next week from the road. Until next time, from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Heather Clancy. Thanks for listening. <laughs>